Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. They started an organization called Cows and Fish. Trout Unlimited Canada and the Alberta Beef Producers and... You know, a few organizations came together and started this program, you know, like we have cattle grazing all over the place and sometimes it's causing harm to streams, but it doesn't have to. And so they created this program and it's been really successful over the last 20 years, providing resources and technical support to ranchers to improve river health. It's really cool. That was Leslie Peterson describing one of their successful TU projects. Native trout, aquatic habitat, water quality, and conservation today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. We got the Bryaniska Steelhead Spay Lodge trip to the Skeena Basin this year. It's going on right now. We're giving away a huge trip. Go to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now if you want a chance to win this trip and all the products that we're giving away along with this, including a lamps and steelhead reel. We got it all. Rods, reels, gear. Check it out right now. If you want to book the trip straight up and just get that trip, you can go right now to wetflyswing.com slash school and you can sign your email right there and, uh, and we'll reach back out to you with some details. Before we get rolling here today, let's hear from our sponsor. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this season. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bearvault to check out this must-have solution for the outdoors now. You support this podcast and your safety this season by clicking through that link right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Drifthook, who has pre-packed fly assortments for every stage of your fly fishing journey. Check out their fan favorite nymph boxes that are hand tied and inspected before being carefully packed into these durable, water-resistant boxes. Each kit is organized by species and includes instructional videos and easy-to-follow guides. Visit wetflyswing.com slash drifthook right now and use coupon code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your next order. Leslie Peterson is here to break down Trout Unlimited Canada. Leslie describes how TU Canada is different from TU USA, which native species they are focusing on this year, and how they are reaching out and protecting bull trout in the region. Plus... We get Leslie's favorite podcast episodes. Here we go. Leslie Peterson from TUCanada.org. How are you doing, Leslie? Great. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Good. Thanks for coming on here. Uh, we have, you know, TU, I think, is definitely, I'm not sure if it's the biggest, but it's one of the biggest, uh, you know, conservation groups out there. You hear a lot about them. Everybody loves them. Um, and I think that TU Canada maybe is a little bit, you know, we have a lot of people in the U.S., so I think we're going to shed some light on the projects you have going on up there because we definitely do have a lot of uh, Canadian listeners as well. But um, before we get into TU Canada, take us back to fly fishing. I know you do a little bit of fly fishing. How did you get into that? Yeah, so I didn't really grow up fishing in a fishing family. Um, you know, we did a little spin casting here and there. I grew up in Saskatchewan, which is in the prairies in, in Canada. And I ended up in Alberta for university and work. And when I started working at Trout Unlimited Canada, it was kind of a no-brainer that I would get into fly fishing. So I, I started that and then joined um, 
we have a Calgary Women Fly Fishing Club here in Calgary that I joined and um, met a lot of great women to sort of mentor me and help you learn along the way. So yeah, it's actually become part of my job, which has been really cool. That's right. I've heard that before where, you know, you've got some, it's a good way to get out there, right? Like maybe put together a trip or something like that, right? It's a good way to get people involved in TU. Also a very useful sampling technique. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, so we, <laughs> that's good. So you do a little bit of that too. And we're going to talk about a few projects you have out there around, uh, around Canada, but maybe just start there because this is, this is kind of the broad, right? This is TU Canada. This is not a specific, uh, you know, region or whatever. How do you, how does that look? Give us the broad brush on TU Canada. What do you cover and, and what don't you cover? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll start with saying Trout Unlimited Canada is a different organization than Trout Unlimited in the United States. We share most of our name and we have some similar goals and objectives, but we have very totally separate governance, a separate mission, separate board, all of that stuff. So yeah, we we have been around for 50 years. We're, we're just kind of celebrating our 50th anniversary and as an organization, we're a registered charity and we have two offices. So one in Calgary, which is where I'm based, and our other office is in Guelph, Ontario. And then aside from that, we have volunteer-based chapters across the country. That's right. And do you have some in in every province? Not every province. Um, and some chapters have, you know, come and go as volunteers come and go, as you know. But we're in, I would say, half to most of the provinces. Okay. And do you have anything in uh, in British Columbia? We do have a few chapters and we've had some projects over the years. Yeah, some of our chapters, you know, struggled, I think, with COVID, um, staying active and, and that kind of thing. Um, but there's certainly a membership in British Columbia. Absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that maybe if we have time at the end. We're doing a little event up on the Skeena Basin. And the Skeena is a, you know, is a, a hot topic, I think, just because steelhead is, even though it's a super small niche, it's always a hot topic. And it seems like runs are kind of down now overall, not just in Canada, all over the Western Rim. But, um, but yeah, so I'm not sure, you know, I mean, that's obviously one topic. But let's just take it, again, stay general. When you look at what you have going as far as projects, um, outreach, where do you, how do you decide, you know, where are you going next? Like, how does that work? We have, um, I guess, our four main themes that guide our work. So water quality, water quantity or flow, aquatic communities and aquatic habitat. So all of our work is focused on one or more, typically more of those themes. And yeah, we do, like I said, work in a lot of flowing water systems, a lot of small tributaries and small streams. Um, we do a lot of habitat restoration work. Um, we do some education and outreach as well. Um, a lot of our work in Alberta that I've been working on over the last number of years has been focused on native trout recovery. So in, in the province here, we have three stream-dwelling native trout Bull trout, West Slope cutthroat trout, and Athabasca rainbow trout, which is so Athabasca rainbow trout is kind of cool because it's the only native rainbow trout that we have in Alberta, and they're all unique to a sort of northern watershed. Anyway, all three of those species are are listed um, federally and provincially at risk, and so we're doing a lot of work to recover those species. Right, right, right. That's it. So basically, and is this this is I, I don't know all the details on the Canadian kind of endangered species act and stuff or is that is it similar to what the u.s has going 
It's a little bit different. So we have what's called the Species at Risk Act in Canada. It's a lot younger than the United States um, Species at Risk legislation. And yeah, it's a little bit different. I would say weaker <laughs> yeah. than, than American right. legislation. And then some provinces have species at risk legislation and some don't. So gotcha. it's, it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting because we're, you know, we're so close. We're, you know, just obviously neighbors. It, it seems like a lot of, I've got so many friends that are up and, well, Phil Roy, right, is a good one, right? We're, we'll talk about yeah. Phil probably. He's <laughs> he's probably one of my best friends, you know, from up in Canada. And uh, and I know you know him well. But uh, yeah, I think it's one of these things where it's interesting, right? There's all these little subtle differences. Like, for example, I think the, um, and this depends on where you go, but like the tribes, right? The tribes are, it seems like there's some areas where maybe the tribes have more power in Canada to do some good stuff than they do down here, right? And I don't know if you guys work with the tribes much, but that's one little difference. But also ESA, yeah, listing fish, that's pretty powerful here because if a fish gets listed, major changes, right, happen there. So that's one thing. So you got all that going, but let's take us to the ground like on a project so we can think about what you're doing. So what would be one thing either now or in the past you've done? It could be a like stream or outreach. What's that look like, a typical deal? Sure. Well, why don't I give an example for from BC because that's kind of where um, you folks are headed. Um, so several years ago, we did a project on Vancouver Island, and it was kind of started how a lot of our projects do with local people becoming concerned about an issue and sort of remembering things differently than they are today. So in this case, it was coastal cutthroat trout. So folks remembered, you know, hey, we used to we used to catch these coastal cutthroat trout or we would see them run up these streams and and we don't see that anymore and you know what's going on so we put together a project and I guess this is kind of one of our strengths is just building partnership and building consensus and working together with people Um, so we you know worked with community members and academia and you know partners and reconnected some of those streams that had been disconnected I guess cutthroat had no longer been able to get upstream and access those habitats and we worked to fix those problems. Gotcha. Yeah. So fish passages, that's a big one that you're, I mean, obviously these fish are anadromous, right? So, or well, some are, so they're migrating yeah. far distances. Yeah. And, and maybe not even far distances, but they still need like in the coastal cutthroat example, you know, they, they need to get up into those freshwater systems for their life cycle. And, um, yeah, and, and for some, sometimes it is like our freshwater species in Alberta, we don't have anadromous fish because they're all, we don't have any waters in Alberta that drain to the ocean, but we still have migratory fish that have been cut off from streams because of whether it's dams or culverts and that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah, bull trout might be a good one. I'm not sure how far they migrate, but they, they do some migration, right? Oh, big time. Yeah, they can do, you know, 100 kilometer plus migrations. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Good. So that's a cool project. So that's in Vancouver Island is, is a hot spot. Definitely. You hear a lot about that. Um, and so that's a good example of a project. What, what would be like on the outreach end? Is that something where you think of, you mentioned the quality, quantity, the kind of the four uh, pillars is outreach. How does that fit in there? Is that just part of everything you do? Yeah, it's kind of part of everything we do. Like we, we have volunteers come out to a lot of our projects and, and that's a great way for people to learn about the issues that are facing our watersheds. Um, they learn firsthand what's what's going on on the landscape and what the solutions are, and they get to help, you know, be part of the solution. Um, so that's one way. 
We also have youth programming. So one of our programs we call Yellowfish Road. And we've been doing this for like 35 plus years. And basically, you know, equip students or youth or families with a kit to go and paint yellow fish next to storm drains in urban areas. And it's just like a reminder that everything that goes down a storm drain goes directly into a river or stream or wetland untreated. And so it's a, a big awareness program that we've been running for decades. And yeah, it's pretty cool. That's a, such a good one. I, you know, you see this, well, I see it quite often, especially in the city. You know, you pull up and you're like, wow, an oil slick just running right off of wherever, right? Some car that's leaking and it's going right into the drain. And yeah. I mean, that that adds up, right? I mean, you imagine, I'm not sure what it's like where you live, but, you know, you get around these cities and even maybe even not cities, right? Do you think this is, do you see that quite a bit? And do you think this is a problem even outside of the cities? Oh, yeah. So urban runoff is one thing. And, and like you said, there's the, you know, oil, you know, from a leaky vehicle or washing your car, all that soap. Um, excess fertilizer, dog poop, all that stuff that runs off in an urban area. And, you know, you've got a lot of impervious like surfaces like pavement and rooftops. And, you know, that all runs off very quickly off the landscape through the storm sewer system into the river. And then in um, like outside the city in like a rural or sort of public land kind of open areas, you've got other kinds of runoff. Um, one of the things we see is on the landscape, a lot of um, linear features like trails and cut lines and things. And, and a lot of our trail systems are like really well managed and well engineered and well maintained, but some of them aren't. And so we're seeing a lot of sediment runoff from those systems. So it's like you have a kind of a sediment shoot, a trail or a cut line or something that's bare ground, nothing grows on it because it's being used all the time and it's compacted and you end up with on a rain event or snow melt runoff brings all that muddy sediment laden water into the into the stream which is a huge problem that's right that's one of those things where yeah you got that going i mean and you got like forest operations you got ag it, it seems like a lot do you ever sit back and and just feel like you know like man this is this is going to be a tough one like any of this stuff <laughs> is such a you know what i mean yeah. like not get negative but right it seems like there's a lot going on yeah sometimes it's overwhelming and you think of you know, like a lot of our fish and our water issues are because of cumulative effects. It's not one thing, it's a whole bunch of things interacting upon each other. And you can't just flip a switch and fix it. So it is kind of a long game for us. And it's, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes, but I wouldn't be in this business if I wasn't an optimist, I think at heart. Um, I really believe that we can make a difference. And so, yeah. I agree. I agree. I think I'm I'm the same way. And I feel like it's almost like that, you know, whatever that quote is, right? A small action, a small group, it kind of starts there and then it just builds, right? You could, you've probably seen that in out there with TU, right? Where you got this group that starts out as a small thing and then all of a sudden this, it almost becomes a movement. Have you seen that? Have you seen those things grow into something where you look back and you're like, wow, this thing has really become something and you didn't realize it was going to get that big? Yeah, for sure. I mean, here's an example. So another project that we do is a fish rescue in the irrigation canals. So Southern Alberta has a very extensive network of irrigation canals and infrastructure. And I know this is an issue in the States as well, but, you know, fish get lost and in these canals, they get entrained. And we started working with the province uh, like 20 some years ago to kind of see, is this an issue? Should we be concerned? And we realized pretty quickly, like, yeah, it's an issue. 
and we should be concerned. So we started doing this fish rescue and it started just as like, let's collect some data and see what's going on. And it's become a movement, like you said, you know, we have people that come out and volunteer every year. Some of them kind of plan their vacations around it. They take time off work to spend time with us and help rescue fish from canals. It's really cool. Wow, that is cool. So you basically go in there with, uh, you know, uh, well, I'm pitching canals. This could be all different sites. I mean, we have the interesting thing is that we've interviewed a lot of people here. So I've heard a lot of crazy stories. And <laughs> one of them is like Arizona, right? We had a, a carp. Like it's interesting because the fish species are everywhere. So you literally will hear like somebody's in the middle of Arizona, the city, whatever, Tucson or something, and there's a carp canal or there's a canal and they're fishing. It's one of the greatest carp fisheries in the, in the country, the state, whatever. So, I mean, there are these fishes, but I'm curious with you with this, like, how does that work? Do you go in there and just shock a huge section of the stream? Do you net it? Do you get all the fish? How do you, you know, how does that look? Yeah. So we focus on areas that we believe fish tend to congregate. So as the water levels drop in the canals, fish tend to move upstream or find deeper water or, you know, pockets that they can hold. And so the water's already kind of lower by the time we get there. And we use backpack electrofishers. Um, it's like the canal is wide enough that we typically use two backpack electrofishing crews working tandemly side by side. And then we work like up to a drop structure or a, or a oh, net right. or something or like that. a barrier or something like a that. A barrier. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And gotcha. so... We have, wow. um, there's like four four or five canals that we visit on an annual basis. And the whole thing takes about 10 days of field work. And yeah, I think we're we're over a million fish now since wow. we started this. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. A million fish. And, and are these the species, some of the species you already mentioned, those three species, or do you also find a random mixture of all sorts of other stuff? Yeah, so the three species that I mentioned, we don't catch a lot of because those are typically higher up in the headwaters. However, we do find bull trout in one of the oh, canals. Wow. Yep. Um, not a lot, but sometimes we'll catch, you know, two or three big adult bull trout in one of the canals. Yeah. Um, a lot of brown trout, rainbow trout, a lot of mountain whitefish, and then a whole slew of really cool non-sport species like, you know, white sucker, long nose sucker, and some dace and sculpins and you name it. So lots of native, I mean, you're getting, these are not all invasive fish. You're getting native fish that are in there. Most of them are native, um, except for the trout, <laughs> which is kind of ironic because, yeah, like the brown brown trout and rainbow trout are not native oh, in these right. watersheds. But, you know, they, they support a highly valuable sport fishery and they're part of the system. So, yeah, we'll rescue them. Gotcha. You mentioned the rainbow trout. What was the one you mentioned earlier, the specific subspecies? Yeah, they're called Athabasca rainbow trout. Athabasca. Can you tell the difference between that one? How would you tell that one between just a normal rainbow trout from wherever? So technically, they're the same species. They're all Oncorhynchus mycus, but they are isolated in that. Well, I shouldn't say isolated, but they're on the east side of the divide. Oh, right. East side. And yep. so they, they, don't, they won't mix, I guess, with rainbow trout in the Pacific drainages, but they tend to be in smaller streams. They don't get very big and they retain their par marks into adulthood, which is really cool. Oh, Wow. Wow, so they have parmar. And so these are fish that maybe are like a six-inch fish would be big or something like that? Yep. Yep. Wow, this is cool. I love this. So you got this big salvage operation. Sounds fun. So then that's the cool thing is like you say, you know, like volunteering. It's, you know, people can donate right now, right? They can go to your website and they can donate, but they could also sign up and like join and volunteer, right? That would be maybe as powerful as paying money. Oh, yeah. So we have volunteer opportunities. People can sign up and volunteer. 
Um, they can donate for sure. Um, we'll put their money into action. And the other way to get involved is to join. So like I said, we have those volunteer-based chapters across the country. And um, so that would be a great way to get like more involved and you could join the chapter executive and help plan projects and, and do stuff like that. Um, so there's so many different levels of involvement in the organization. That's great. Yeah. Your website is awesome. There's so many resources there. So that's good. Um, so I want to take a, like an example. This is kind of something I'm thinking about and, and this would be like a new one, but let's just take the Skeena. So we're heading to the Skeena trip. It's going to be amazing. You know, I mean, the fishing, uh, you like we say, and the, the numbers have been down a little bit, but there'll be some opportunities. But if there was a group, somebody listening or, you know, to that episode on the Skeena and they're like, oh, wow, there's no, I'm not even sure if there's a Skeena or some group, TU group, but if they're like, hey, I want to start a TU group for this area because I really like TU. I think the Skeena needs one. Where would they start? Like, how would they do that? Is that a long process or where's step one? No, it's not really a too onerous of a process. Basically, you just need six people that come together and say, you know, hey, we think this is an issue where we want to do this. and um, come together and have a few conversations with our staff about your goals and objectives and what you're interested in and basically apply to become a chapter. We'll send some paperwork and that kind of thing. And then it would get approved by our board of directors and, and then you're good to go. So, and then our job is to try and provide support to those chapters and, and help them out along the way. Right. Right. And support could be either like technical assistance or maybe even funding, something like that. Yeah, like advice um, and identifying projects, help with with grant applications, maybe connecting them with other partners or people that we might know in the area or that they think they should connect with, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and I and to you, I'm I'm guessing up there is there's quite a few people involved. Well, what, what does that look like when you say? I mean, maybe you could start with the board. Do, do you know most of the board members pretty closely, like who they are? Um. Yeah. So I've met. I've probably met most of them. Um, they do a lot of their meetings on Zoom these days. Like, you know, that's kind of one of the relics of the pandemic that's changed. But the board, they are kind of distributed. They're located in um, across the country. So we have members in different provinces. So I guess that <laughs> maybe works best for them. Um, so, yeah, we have our board of directors and then we have the staff. I think we have about 20 staff oh, wow. at the moment. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, 20 staff. So you have a, and, and remind us again, we haven't dug into this, but what is your exact title role in your position? So my role is conservation director. So I support and guide our conservation efforts uh, across the country. So previously I was the um, more focused on just Alberta and Western Canada. And I've just recently moved into more of a national focused role. So it's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. So has that been quite a bit like a challenge going nationally like versus where you're at? Um, well, it's fun for me because I'm getting to know more about the work that we do in Ontario because my focus has been sort of Western for so long. So it's good because now I'm kind of getting to know more of the volunteers and the chapters and the projects out East. And um, it's been really rewarding. I'm looking forward to getting out there and you know, getting out in the field out east as well and getting to know the watersheds and that too. Right, right, right. That's the huge part is that, and I find that as well, you know, we, I'm actually out in the west, you know, and uh, in Oregon, but I mean, we've grown this show into kind of a, it's a national show. So we have as many people kind of out, you know, east, 
you know, almost now is the West. And yeah, I mean, it's a hot spot up there. If you think of, I'm not sure how Ontario looks, but I know I've interviewed a number of people from Ontario and, but just that part, right. The great lakes and like all that stuff, it almost seems like just because of the people, it's almost a busier area. Do you find that there's just as much going on in Ontario as there is in like uh, Alberta? Yeah, it's a busy, it's a busy place and so many pressures on the landscape with development, you know, like Southern Ontario is just, you know, it's very highly developed, I guess. And, um, a lot of pressure on our, our streams and rivers. Yep. Yeah. It's not an easy one. So I guess we, we got a couple things going here. We, we mentioned BC, the trip, that's good. Um, you know, what else do you tell people if they're like listening right now, somebody's listening, they, you know, they might be, they're likely, you know, in the United States or Canada, but they could be all around the world. What's like, uh, something you tell them to say, Hey, you can do, make a difference. You know, there's one thing you could do. What, what is that thing? Do you think is, is the most, you know, kind of high priority message? You know, I think just talking to people is really important about, you know, if you're interested and concerned about fish or river health and watershed health, talk to your friends and family about it because maybe maybe they don't know. They maybe they don't know the issues that are facing our landscapes and it's good to have those conversations and and get people aware of of the different threats and pressures that are out there. Um whether it be land use or fishing or invasive species, you know, all these, all these things and species at risk. Um, these are just like really good conversations to have, and maybe it might spark an interest in somebody and they might, might get involved. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high-quality fly tie materials, and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one. And it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, for buying into this unimproved boat ramp, uh, pulling the boat out, and, and we ended up with a great opportunity uh, and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Last. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. I'd love to get your take on a question that I had, and um, this is it was interesting because I had a guest on who actually was a uh, a professor and kind of you know fish fisheries and stuff, right? And and we were talking. This is actually in Maine. I think it was it was more Maine focused, but you know we were talking about how the changes in um, you know declines in numbers of fish, right? Like uh, native populations of trout, um, even even musky, right, and things like that changes there but then also the invasive species you know bass in some areas coming getting bigger and he just made the point like hey things are going downhill 
You know, like it's been, we're not going to change the tide of this whole thing and, and recover. Like, there's just no way. Like he was basically saying, this is kind of where it is. You could do some stuff, but that's where it's going. I mean, what, what do you say to that? Because it seemed like that was a pretty, um, you know, that's one serious way to look at it. But what are your thoughts when you say, let's take one of your populations, you know, you got one of the ones, you know, the trout populations say they're going down. You know, how do you see that? Does it seem like a kind of a crazy thing to overcome or what's your take on his, that, that comment there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we have to be kind of pragmatic, honestly. Like, so let's look at bull trout, for example. So, you know, they, they're in BC um, on the eastern slopes of the Rockies in Alberta and in America as well. So in, in Alberta, for example, they would have been historically, they're distributed throughout the eastern slopes region. And you know, they're still in many of those places, but their range has contracted. So where they used to extend well out into kind of almost into the prairies, they don't do that anymore. And, you know, they might have been more robust in some watersheds and they're just not anymore. You know, we have to be realistic that we're we're not turning back the clock. We can't go back to, you know, pre-settlement. Pre-white settlement. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we have to look at like, where can we improve function? Where are we going to have our, the biggest bang for our buck? We used to kind of throw around things like protect the best and restore the rest. And I think that's kind of kind of how it is. Like not to write off populations, but to recognize maybe it would take a Herculean effort to bring them back in a particular watershed. Are our efforts better focused somewhere else? And those are really hard decisions to make. It is. I love that take. I mean, and that's a similar take. And that makes me feel good about that conversation because, you know, part of it is a good example might be the dams, right? I mean, like in our area, you know, we got all these massive dams and there's, you know, those dams aren't coming out the big ones, right? They're protecting cities from flooding and stuff. Right. And in some areas, right? I mean, those dams are going to keep, you know, full recovery maybe for some of these areas. And I could understand that in your area, I'm sure you have the same thing, right? You see this bull trout, like, Hey, you know, you're not going to ever take back some of that land where there's somebody living or there's a, you know, a city or something like that. So, okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. I appreciate that take. But again, like looking ahead. So we're looking ahead now at some of the species. And and for example, you know, I keep mentioning the steelhead because that's where we're headed. But, uh, you know, you see a downturn there. And, and for that example, you might just keep doing habitat protection and, uh, you know, improving habitat as best you can. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, right, you, you're limited on what you can do. Yeah, it's so hard. And, you know, like, same with steelhead. There's, you know, multiple threats. There's ocean survival and there's passage, you know, migration, like up into the freshwater and the threats along the way. You know, they're, they got so many things trying to kill them <laughs> all the time. And so, yeah, you can focus, you can do habitat restoration and, and the rivers is really important and protecting that. But, you know, you know, the ocean survival, that's, that's a tough nut to crack. Um, so you have to look at, well, what are the things that may, where can we maybe make a difference? How can we improve survivability in their migrations, in the habitat, and just do your best to kind of focus on what you can successfully accomplish? Right, right. Perfect. Well, I want to touch on, I don't want to forget about Phil because uh, I always love uh, joking with him. He's a, he's a, he's a jokester. <laughs> But uh, so talk about that. I know he um, he was there for quite a while. I don't think he's there maybe working anymore. Um, but uh, but yeah, talk about that. Like he was there till recently. What was Phil, what was he doing for TU? 
Yeah, Phil, um, we, he worked here for probably 10 years, um, sort of part-time as our marketing and communications director. And so, yeah, Phil was always a great, he's a great guy to work with and um, always keep things light, you know, in meetings. And yeah, and we, I had a few opportunities to fish with him as well. And yeah, he, you know, he's just gotten so busy with his other stuff. And so I think made, it was a difficult decision, but kind of mo- decided it was time to move on from TUC and, and focus on his other stuff, which is great for him. Like, I'm really happy for him. Um, good move for him. It is. No, it's great for us too, because, you know, it's funny because, right, he's working with us now. Um, I mean, basically he's, you know, he's got his own podcast within our podcast network. Yeah. And, uh, and it's pretty cool because I feel like now talking to you, right, it's all, it's all connected. Phil isn't going to stop doing the work I'm sure that he was doing and he's (laughs) still going to promote you guys, right? Yeah. He, I think he, he certainly like deeply cares about the work that we do and he's got such a, a great voice, you know, to influence people. And, um, yeah, it's great to hear that he's, he's, um, on the podcast and yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's been popular. The, uh, littoral zone podcast, right. It's been good. Uh, uh, but we've had a couple other ones. I was just thinking, you know, we had, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of Gord Pizer. He's kind of out uh, in that Ontario area. He's like a musky expert. And, uh, and then, uh, Brian Chan, of course, out mm-hmm. in like, you know, he's a big, who are some of the other people up there that are these, superstar, you know, like kind of, um, I guess, yeah, biologists, right? They're, they're out there. Are there a bunch of like, who are the people that are helping guide TU Canada on the, like the science part of it? Yeah. Um, so we've had, we have some advisors, I guess. Um, some are like, you know, retired fish and wildlife biologists and things like that, that, you know, they send us information and write essays and kind of get us thinking about things and provide advice. Um, there's one fellow that comes to mind. His name is Lauren Fitch. And he used to work for the province of Alberta as a fisheries biologist. And he and um, other another fellow, they started an organization called Cows and Fish. And with Trout Unlimited Canada's help, I guess it was like Trout Unlimited Canada and the Alberta beef producers. And, you know, a few organizations came together and started this program to help ranchers like producers improve practices on their operations to help riparian areas and shorelines. And, you know, like we have cattle grazing all over the place and sometimes it's causing harm to streams, but it doesn't have to. And so they created this program and it's been really successful over the last 20 years, providing resources and technical support to ranchers to improve river health. It's really cool. So Lauren is one of those guys that, you know, I can call and say, hey, Lauren, what do you think about this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah, cows and fish. I love that. That's that's catchy. So what do they do? Is that something where they go in there and they're trying to kind of set up riparian, like fencing and stuff to keep cows out of the streams? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, they do a lot of riparian like restoration and um, fencing and off stream watering. And, you know, they kind of start with doing a, an assessment. So give a producer like a report card and on their riparian and range health and make some suggestions like maybe try this and that and and then come back in a few years and they can do a reassessment and see how things have improved. That's right. What is the incentive for those folks? I, I'd imagine there's some people that are kind of hesitant, like farmers to be like, oh, you know, I'm not sure. How do you get in there to build, start that partnership, right? To get the trust. 
they have done a really good job of that. And they have a, a process where like, they don't just go knock on doors and say, Hey, we're here to help. <laughs> they they're invited into the community or invited in by a, a family to, you know, Hey, we are looking for some help. So they have a really good process. They listen really well. And I think that's been key to their success. Right. Right. So instead of, yeah, instead of knocking on the door and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm trout unlimited, we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're here to help you yeah. pretty much go out and say, Hey, okay, this is an area we're working in or something like that. And then you find somebody who is like, has, is connected to that industry sort of, how, how does that look? Well, sometimes it's, um, you know, like they'll work with the municipalities or, um, like watershed stewardship groups and, um, so they're seen as like, you know, highly respected professionals that can um, offer help and advice. And so they have a great reputation and, and people go to them. And then another guy, you know, you mentioned like who were those other kind of biologists or that set the stage and stuff. And one also is Jack Imhoff. And he was our national biologist for, I don't know, 10 plus years as well. And he just recently retired. And Jack, um, He's also, he used to work for provincial government in Ontario and he's like a guru in stream restoration and he, everybody knows who he is in, and you know, one of those guys, everyone knows him. He's done so much amazing work and taught so many people in his career. And so he's another person that I call on for help and advice and a really great resource. Yeah. So you still have that, even though he's retiring now, you can still call on him if you have questions. Yeah, there's kind of this thing where, like, if you used to work for Trout Unlimited, you you never really leave. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're volunteer. You're you're not you're not getting out, right? <laughs> No, I hear you. No, that's good. Awesome. So this sounds pretty cool. So it sounds like there's a wide mix of partners. I mean, when you look at overall TU partners, is it pretty much, you know, you've kind of got everybody. You know, you you try to connect with you know all the interest groups out there. Yeah, we, we, I guess that's one of our values or strengths maybe is that we try to work with people. We, we try not to butt heads too much. I mean, we'll say, you know, when, when something isn't good, we'll, we'll say something. Um, but we really try to work collaboratively. So we've worked with, you know, industry, all levels of government, local community, like friends of groups, um, big other national conservation groups. So we really try to work work closely with people. That's awesome. No, and and I I kind of always enjoy and, and joke sometimes about the you know the fly fishing thing. Like you know you don't talk about politics and <laughs> uh, and religion, right? If you're on a guide trip, don't know politics, no religion. And then it's interesting because conservation definitely is one of those things that you know we've talked about this plenty of times, but can get a little political for some reason, right? And you know I think that's just part of what we have to deal with. Um, but do you find, I'm kind of interested because, you know, you look at the United States, this is a political question, but, um, you know, like we had this, you know, president who kind of was very divisive, right. And Uh he kind of, it was tough, but how does it look in Canada? Do you find that that's something you think about, like who's in charge or are you guys just doing your own thing? It doesn't really matter who's running the country sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it does and it doesn't, right. So the governing party, whether it be provincially or federally, they make decisions that affect us, whether it be, you know, legislation, um, land use, um, fish related stuff, for sure. Like the decisions that are made, make an impact, but we, we have to just keep doing what we're doing. And so um, I guess it's kind of 
our challenge to figure out like, okay, who's the governing party or body and what are their priorities? How, where do we align? Maybe there's going to be places where we don't align, um, but we try to focus on where, where do we align and how can we make the most out of the situation? That's right. I love that. Yeah, that's it. It's not about like, Hey, we have all these differences, you know, this, this is you suck. You're terrible. It's more like, Hey, well, how do we, how do we align? How can we work together? I mean, that that's like, it's so interesting because that's just like politics one-on-one, right? I mean, that's, that's how it should work. You find things you agree on and then you work on those things and then you, you know, but it seems like at least in the U S that has changed, right? That's gone away. Do mm-hmm. you find that up there? Is it more, is it like that? Do you see politics is still being very much people on both sides are kind of working together? Yeah. People can be pretty, it can be divisive for sure. Um, one thing that was really interesting last year that happened out here, the provincial government made some moves to change coal policy and so kind of, I guess, making it sort of opening it up to potentially more mine exploration and, and mining and stuff like that. Anyway, without getting too far into it, what was really interesting was how so many people came together from all political sides, came together and said, we don't want this. This is not what we want for our Rocky Mountains. And it really united people, whether they were left-leaning, right-leaning, they came together to voice their concerns and that was really neat wow that is cool and it made a difference they rescinded what they were going to do so <laughs> exactly right there you go so what is on on your background we dug into this a little bit but how did you get prepared for you know this i mean it sounds like the position you have conservation um director you know that role is uh is kind of sounds pretty huge you know what was your education like to get prepared for this or did you learn this on the go so yeah, I like I said, I grew up in Saskatchewan and I grew up like near a river. And so we we used to go down to the river for like, hey, what do you what do you want to do today? Let's go down to the river. <laughs> so I think I've always been tied to river and water. And um after high school I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, did some, you know, fun jobs for a while, worked in the mountains, and then did some traveling. Anyway, I ended up taking like a natural resource technology diploma because I thought I like working outside. I want to be outside. So I took a really kind of broad sort of diploma program and then um, went into university in Edmonton, Alberta, and took a conservation biology program that I I majored in. So then I was like, yeah, got really interested in conservation. And um, I worked for a few, I worked for Ducks Unlimited Canada for a little while. And um, I worked for Trout Unlimited first for like a really short two month contract, found another job. And then I came back here as a technician. And, you know, it started as an eight month job and then it got extended and then moved into a different job. And so now I'm on my third job with the organization, I think, third or fourth. There you go. Yeah. And That's it's awesome. been, yeah, it's been really, really great. Yeah. And what is the, what's the highest, what is there like an executive director of TU? Yep. So our CEO, she works out of our Calgary office here too, Sylvia Demelio. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's really cool. And she is a biologist too, which is great because, so she, um, she's been with us for 20 years and she started as a biologist in Ontario. So it's awesome because she's got really great experience with, um, you know, our field programming or restoration work and just the, the concepts and ideas and everything, but she's got great like management and governance experience too. So it's a good mix. 
Right on. What would be, you know, I always think of kind of resources for people listening. So if they wanted to learn more about what you have going or dig into some of these topics, or where, where do you go? Where do you send people if they have questions and they want to go deeper? Like if it could be project, it could be like, say, hey, I want to learn more about what's going on in BC. I want to learn more about, you know, what's going on in Alberta is, do you have like on your website, do you have a link that says like, here's all the stuff going and things like that? Um, yes, yeah, so we do a blog. Um, oh, you do? And- Yep, maybe that's where to start. That's yeah, on, our, on our website. Um, we post stuff about our projects and just sort of general information about, you know, like what do fish do in the wintertime and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we're pretty active on social media. So there's lots of really great fun facts and, and that that we share on social media. So I would definitely encourage folks to follow us there too. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay. We'll do that. And, and let's, uh, we're going to do, this is our uh, coffee talk segment. We're going to start to wrap it up here in a little bit. And, uh, I always love to start with the coffee because it seems like for me, it's like, uh, it's one of the things that keeps me going. So, and, and of course, Angler's Coffee is kind of our, um, you know, the company that we love to support here and they have great coffee. And actually Joe at Angler's is a great conservation, um, minded person. He, I don't know, sure, you know, 1% for the planet. We recently had the the person that founded that organization on, um, and uh, we talked about that. But what is for you? Like, let's just take, these are some of these random questions will be real easy for you, but what's your beverage of choice? It's early in the morning now. So are you a coffee drinker, are you tea, or what, what are you doing? Yeah, coffee. <laughs> oh, it is coffee. Yeah, I like coffee in the morning and then maybe tea in the afternoon or evening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Coffee and tea. All right. So this we always call that. I tend to sometimes call this our rapid fire round, but sometimes it goes a little bit longer, so I shy away from that. But okay. So you got that. What is um? So I always love to get into music because I like to put some music in the show notes. Um, and I'm curious, or a podcast. Are, do you listen to other podcasts? Do you listen to more music or more podcasts during the you know during the day of the month? Um, both. I listen to um, I listen to the radio a lot. Like, oh, you <laughs> do. I listen to CBC, which is like our public broadcaster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, like CBC. your NPR kind of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. they have um, like a lot of really great talk programs that I listen to. Um, so that I would listen to like in the morning and um, and music. They have music programs as well. So, oh, they do? They yeah. Do. And for, for podcasts, I like listening to um, a lot of food co- podcasts because I like cooking. Oh, cool. And baking. And um, so I listen to a lot of those. What, and- what's a good, can you give us one food podcast you like that we can take a look at yeah I, I need to get better at making uh, cooking food as well so <laughs> there's one it's called the sporkful um oh, i actually cool. haven't listened to them in a while but they have some good ones it's you know they tell good stories and i do listen to outdoors podcasts as well oh you do okay what's yeah. what's one uh, outdoor podcast you listen to um like april vokey's podcast oh yeah yeah, yeah april's Anchored. awesome yeah that's yep. a great one she's got really good that's right. Yeah, she's she's kind of cool because and we had her on the podcast quite a, a while ago and I love where she's gone because she started out as a really, you know, fly fishing focus, but I think now she's got more general, right? She's covering all sorts of different things in the outdoors. Mhm. Yeah, it's really really interesting. That's cool. That's good stuff. All right, so you got that and then uh, and then what would be the music? What would be a type or a group or a band or somebody that like if we could throw something in the show notes? What what do you what would be one thing that comes to your mind? Or right now we're we'll go to Spotify. This is our Spotify challenge. We're going to search something to get a, a something to play for the the end of the show. Well, this weekend I'm excited cuz I'm going to see Corb Lund. Um, he's playing with this Calgary Philharmonic Orchestra. So, I don't oh, wow. know if you listen to Corb Lund, but He's, no, um, this is awesome. An Alberta artist, and um, he's great. Good storyteller, musician as well. 
Awesome. Corb Lund. So yeah, Corb yeah. Lund. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. So good. So now we'll get we'll look up some some Corb Lund and throw that in there. Yeah, um, definitely. Awesome. Cool. All right. And um, what about a project? You know, we've talked about some projects. Have we talked about I mean, what is your one kind of high priority project right now you're looking at, like either now or in the future, you're saying, hey, this is going to take up, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a cool project. Anything you want to give a shed of light in the future coming up? Yeah, one we've been working on for a few years. It's um, a small watershed in the southwestern part of Alberta called Trout Creek. And um, there's lots of stories from the old timers, I guess, of like, you know, they used to catch a lot of cutthroat trout in there. And even like when I first went there, it seemed like a really cool place and you could see cutthroat all over the place. And there's hardly any in there now. Like we've done some sampling and seen like one fish. Um, So it's really one of those like, you know, really need to um, make a big change, I think, to be able to bring fish back there. And so we've we've done a lot of work to um, one of the issues is trails like off highway vehicle like motorized trails. And so we're working with um, the local um, motorized rec group out of the area and relocating trails, moving them out of the floodplain, restoring the riparian areas. And we're going to, we plan on building a bunch of beaver dam analogs, which are like, um, like human made beaver dams to mimic beaver activity and encourage beaver activity. And so one of the problems in the Trout Creek watershed is that it just doesn't, hold water really like it used to and I think part of the reason is there are no beavers anymore or there's very few and the landscape has just changed so much that it's just not great for beavers anymore so we want to we want to kind of turn that around and try that out so we're really excited about it wow that sounds like a great project yeah and that's partly yeah like beavers right they do all sorts of good stuff but like maybe like groundwater right recharge might be something where those pools are doing all sorts of stuff we probably don't know right under the surface yeah, they they definitely like um, reconnect a stream to its floodplain. They add complexity. They add so there's so many other biodiversity benefits too in terms of other species, and they're just you know our ecosystem engineers, and they we need them out on the landscape. The whole our landscape was built by beavers, and so we've lost them in so much of of North America, and we need to bring them back. There's so some really cool stuff that's come out of the states, like University of Utah, and others um, on this. And so we're we're learning from them, and we're actually bringing a, a fellow up from Utah in a couple of weeks to host a workshop. And so we're inviting a bunch of you know landowners and um, regulators and NGO groups to come and learn from this um, Stephen Beckett about how to build beaver dam analogs and that kind of thing. There you go. That sounds amazing. Great. Cool. That's something definitely to look forward to. We'll uh, try to get a link out in the show notes to that and, uh, and everything else we talked about today. Um, yeah. And I guess I want one quick one. I was kind of curious on your daily. So just to give us an idea to jump in there, like the office, are you, are you guys all remote? Are you doing, or do you go into an office? What is your, what does a daily, uh, look like for you at work? Yeah, we we're back at the office. We can't, can't, you know, return to the office, I guess, last fall, we were doing the work from home for two years. Um, but we're all back now. And yeah, we most of the winter, we're writing reports and applying for grants and, you know, that kind of thing. And then our field crews are like really getting busy already. And um, they've been out over the last couple of weeks, 
prepping for field season, field work, and yeah, so they're kind of in and out all summer. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and you're and you're basically so you're doing probably what like 80, 80 percent of your time is in the office. You get out in the field a little bit. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I feel like I'm <laughs> maybe at the point where I can. I'm doing the field work that I either really, really want to do or, or feel like I really need to. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Leslie. Well, we'll send everybody out to uh, tucanada.org if they have questions for you or if they want to get involved. And hopefully we'll get a few people out there and maybe volunteering for some projects or, you know, like we said, maybe even starting their own group. If it sounds amazing. like it's an easy process. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Cool. All right, Leslie. Well, we'll keep in touch with you. And until we talk, uh, have a great rest of the week. Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one, too. There it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 450. 450. Check it out right now. We're halfway to 500. If you got an idea for what we should be celebrating on our 500th episode, any ideas as we're getting there, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Quick reminder, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. Right now, we got it going. The giveaway is open for about a week, and it's your chance to win the Skeena Space School uh, Steelhead Fishing on the Skeena with Brian Niska at the Lodge, plus the huge gear pack, reels, rods. Um, we've got it all dialed in. This is, a, this is one of the biggest ones ever. You can check it out, enter. All we need is your email and name, and, uh, and that's your chance. If you want to grab a slot to the Skeena Space School, you can also do that straight up and just purchase a slot. We've got limited numbers, but if you're interested right now, uh, we're filling uh, at least, we're looking at six slots right now, and uh, you can check it out, enter your email there, and we'll follow up with you um, on email. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here, Joel Biller. Joel Biller reached out on email, and Joel said, I live in Kamloops, BC, and we get a run of Chinook every summer in August and September. And about three years ago, I was introduced to, for the first time after seeing many other people catching these really big fish, it reignited my passion of fishing. And I caught my first one the last day of our season, and that was it. I was hooked, and it consumed my life ever since. My main goal this year is to catch a Chinook on a hand-tied fly on my spay rod. I recently really got into tying my own flies and started tying big intruders uh, with Chinook and bull trout in mind, and uh, and if I can manage to catch one this year on one of my flies, that would be an incredible feeling and experience. Thanks again, Dave. Love the podcast. It's honestly what influenced me to try spay fishing and swinging flies. Keep up the awesome work. Amazing, Joel. That might be the greatest email that uh, we've received this year. This is uh, feels so good to know that we're helping you have a better experience out there and get into uh, swinging flies doesn't get any better than that and i hope to catch you on the river as well if you're listening out there right now i'd love to catch you on the water maybe at this skeena space school and if not check in with me online dave at wetflyswing.com and then i'll give you a shout out on this episode if i haven't heard from you before if it's been a while this is your chance uh check in with me and let me know what you have going and we'll give you a shout out all right, where are we heading next? I'm just going to give one uh, quick shout out to tomorrow's episode. Uh, you got to check tomorrow's episode out because we've got a special, super special guest. And uh, and I'm excited. I'm not even going to let you know who that is because this is our mystery guest for the week. Um, we might want to just get into that, having a mystery guest each week. And uh, it's going to be a good one. It's going to tie into some of the stuff we're doing right now. And it almost, uh, yeah, I don't think it gets much bigger than this. So stay tuned tomorrow for that big episode. Like I said, I hope to connect with you on the water sometime, maybe online. And I hope right now you're having a great afternoon, great evening, or great morning, wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping in today. Talk to you soon.
Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.